Amen. Well, it's awesome to worship together. Uh, <clears throat> we haven't had a chance to meet yet, and I'm Jack, one of the pastors here. And we're going to be in the book of Esther. So if you have a Bible, you're welcome to turn to that, which is the easy way to just find Psalms right in the middle, and then go left back a couple books to the book of Esther. We started this series last week. If you weren't with us last week, I want to encourage you to go back and listen to that message or watch it online uh, because it was kind of key set up for a lot of the things that we're looking at in the story. I challenged you last week to read the story of Esther. I know a couple of you said, hey, I did that. It took me a little bit longer than 16 minutes, but you did it. I'm proud of you for doing that uh, because I think it'll give you an overview of where we're going. So as you turn there or if you open up Sermon Notes, you can follow along on Sermon Notes there through the app. Um, but how many of you have been to the Gaslight Theater here in town? Perfect. How many of you have never heard of the Gaslight Theater? Okay. Here's what I want to encourage you to do. Google that because it's super awesome. Uh, how many of you have been here would agree? Super awesome. Wow. Okay, there we go. Uh, a little more endorsement. So, you know, it's a dinner theater where you go, you get free popcorn. You can't beat that. Um, and then you can order food, and it has this uh, interaction with the actors and actresses on stage, and it's meant to be very interactive. In fact, at the uh, basis of the story, the, they do some oleos at the end, but they have this story that plays out. They do it maybe two or three months at a time. And in those stories, at one point, the hero steps forward and says, and I will save the day. And there's a little more interaction than that. Okay, so right there. Okay, and then there's also a villain in the story typically, and that villain would step forward and say, I'm going to ruin the day. Perfect. Uh, I've, I've been booed. Okay, so, um, but you kind of get the idea, right? And I want you to keep that in mind as we get to chapter three and four tonight and looking into the story of Esther. So just a quick review to get you caught up. The story of Esther really has five main characters in it. King Xerxes, who's the one in charge, supposedly, uh, and has power over the Persian Empire about 480 BC that stretches from the Mediterranean Sea to the Arabian Sea in the north part of Africa. It's this huge empire that's going, and he's there. Queen Vashti was there, but she's only there for chapter one, so she's already out of the story. Mordecai and Esther are the ones that are kind of the, the main characters of the story. Obviously, Esther is the hero of this story, uh, and the book is named after her. And then Haman is the villain of the story. We get introduced to him a little bit tonight. And so as you uh, hear the very first verses about Haman, you might want to interact like we're at Gaslight Theater. So we'll get there in a second. So reviewing this is just simply said, hey, if we were to summarize Esther, we'd say it's Game of Thrones without the dragons. Okay, you just take out the dragons, and really this is what's going on in the whole story. It's about elaborate wealth and hidden agendas, good and evil, sex, power, pride, tragedy, triumph, and God orchestrating behind the scenes in it all. The whole book of Esther never mentions the name of God, never mentions God in the whole story. It's the only book in the entire Bible that does that, and yet God's hand and his fingerprints are throughout the entire thing. Why? Because he's sovereign. That's what we looked at last week. This idea that God's in the background working things for his plan and for his will to be accomplished all the time. Even when we think we mess things up, he never is messed up in those plans, that he's always at work. And so he's the unmentioned one, the one who truly is sovereign and has providence over all things. And we said, you know, this challenge we gave each other last week is this idea that when you find yourself living in exile, when you find yourself living in a cultural context that opposes your values and virtues and what your faith calls you to be, because that's what's going on for the Jewish people who are living in exile in the Persian Empire. They have not returned back to the homeland of where they were called to be. They're living in this, this culture that is against 
against what they value. And typically when you're in that context, what you want to do is either lean toward conformity, I'm just going to assimilate into culture, and I'm going to do what the culture does, and I'm just going to go along with the crowd, and I'm going to change actually my values and my faith uh, as a, out of that as I do that. Or you tend to lean toward isolation that I'm just going to isolate, insulate myself away from culture, and it's not going to affect me, but nor am I going to have any influence there. But what we said is assimilation or conforming is a failure of nerve, and isolation is a failure of the heart. That assimilation or conforming fails to stand strong and resist, and yet isolation fails to love the people around you. And so we've got to figure out a third way. What we talked about is Jesus' way, because Jesus lived this out. He he didn't conform to culture. He transformed culture. And that's what we're called to be as his followers, is to be people who are transforming the culture around us. Not to isolate away and insulate ourselves from culture, but to have an influence and a sway into it. Jesus said, you are salt and light. He didn't call us to duck and cover, right? And so as salt and light, you have influence into it, even when you may be at opposition and opposed at moments and in seasons to things going on around you. And so you have to learn to live in the tension of that. And that means you're living by the Spirit and saying, God, I don't know the best thing to do in this moment. I have your word and I'm trying to check my life against it, but I know it's a nuance. And what's the right, best Jesus way of things to do in this moment? And so that's what you have to learn to wrestle with. And so we even said the series takeaway for the whole series is this. At times, God may seem silent, but friends, he is never absent. That's the crux of this whole story of Esther. God seems incredibly silent in this whole entire story, yet he is not absent for one second. And his sovereignty is over all things. And so in chapter 3, we are introduced to the villain of the story. Here's chapter 3, verse 1. After these events, so after like... 12 years, because whenever the Bible readers in the New Testament would say, after these events, they're summing up like a decade later, okay? So lots of things have happened. There's probably been a lot more banquets, because we saw last week that these people love banquets as much as you love all-you-can-eat buffets. After these events, King Xerxes honored Haman. Good job. All right. Way to go. Okay. Uh, Honored Haman uh, and elevated him and giving him a seat of honor higher than that of all the other nobles. All the royal officials at the king's gate knelt down and paid honor to Haman. There you go. For the king had commanded this concerning him, but Mordecai would not kneel down and pay honor to him. We don't boo Mordecai. Mordecai's, yay. Okay, good. Okay. Just making sure you know who the characters are. Um, But this idea, Mordecai says, look, I I am not going to bow down to Haman. Now, this is a fascinating thing. Because if we're just honest... Looking at the story, you read chapter 1 and chapter 2, and as a good follower of Jesus, you could look at Mordecai and you could look at Esther's story, and you could look at their story and say, man, they've sold out. They've just totally assimilated into culture. It just, they're not really standing up for God or for God's ways. They almost seem hidden in this. And you can look, almost put yourself in a seat of judgment over them if you're just looking at chapter 1 and chapter 2. But there's something that goes on here in chapter 3, and maybe even in this particular moment, where the roots of Mordecai's faith become nourished again. 
And they begin to reignite and re-engage. And there's something going on in his life, and you'll see in Esther's life here in the next couple of chapters. This notion of saying, I- I've got to be a person that lives out my identity. These beginning moments is when Mordecai's faith begins reignited. That There seems to be this building resistance or this check within his own heart to not overly be defiant or disrespectful, but to simply not just go along with the crowd. And the challenge for us that begs the question is, when is that moment for you? Because if we're trying to figure out a third way, not to live in conformity, but not to live in isolation, but to figure out this Jesus way, what's the line for you? I don't know the answer for that. But I think that's a question we all have to wrestle with. In a culture that is pushing against maybe the values of what Jesus stands for, you will have to wrestle with what is that line for you? What is that moment? Or where am I going to be? Just like Mordecai had to here. That in a lot of ways you can look at him and say he was just kind of going along with things until this moment when he has never identified himself as a Jew, but in this moment he does. And in this moment he makes a stand and says, I'm not going to just go along with the crowd. I'm actually going to kind of push back against what culture is pushing onto me. And this issue we must each face in our time and in our day. What is that going to be? See, we are called to be in the world, but not of it. And that means as we try to wrestle and figure out this, this third way of living, this way of Jesus, it means there's going to come challenging moments for us where we're going to have to wrestle and maybe take a stand like Mordecai did. To say, I'm not just going to go along with the crowd and just do what everyone else says to do and what culture is pushing me to do because I follow a different leader. I follow Jesus. And so he doesn't live this way. He doesn't call me to live this way. And so I have to push back against that. So the royal officials, verse 3, goes on. They're kind of pushing Mordecai. Why do you not follow along with the crowd? Why are you not doing this? He finally reveals to them that he's a Jew. He's never done that before. But in this moment, he finally does. Therefore, they told Haman, (laughs) because that's awesome, tattletales. Uh, They tell Haman about him. They see where Mordecai's behavior would be tolerated, for he had told them that he was a Jew. And then verse 5. When Haman saw that Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honor, he was enraged. Yet having learned who Mordecai's people were, he scorned the idea of killing only Mordecai. Instead, Haman looked for a way to destroy all of Mordecai's people, the Jews throughout the whole land of the king of Xerxes. This is genocide. That's what this is. This is pre-Holocaust, Holocaust talk. This is a plan that's put in motion. This idea, this moment of change for Mordecai begins to change. This. I can't just sit quiet anymore. I can't just be about me. This has to be bigger. All these temptations that he has assimilated into being Persian, so to speak. And yet in this moment, something he realizes that the world has gotten bigger. It's bigger than the court. It's bigger than the city of Susa. It's bigger than the Persian Empire. This is about God's story. And I've got to lean in and be a part of that. This was an act of courage and vulnerability. And it echoes throughout the story of the Bible. You think back to Abraham, left the aristocratic life in Ur to follow God into a land that God said, look, I want you to follow me, and I'm going to show you where to go. You look at Moses, and he sacrificed his position of power in Egypt to defend a slave. 
comes back years later to defend the people of Israel and more vulnerability, ask Pharaoh to let the Israelites go. He was a son of Pharaoh, and yet he gave it all up in vulnerability to say, I need to be something different. David faced Goliath, not in strength, but in weakness. John the Baptist spoke truth to power, both in a religious establishment and the government. And then, of course, the most perfect example is the incarnation of Jesus himself, the ultimate act of vulnerability, the ultimate moment when someone laid down his power and his authority for the sake of others. See, that's what vulnerability does. It lays down power for the sake of others. And that's what you're going to see transpire through Mordecai and through Esther. That in a culture that seemed that they were assimilated into, they begin to put down the roots of their faith and God begins to grow some bravery within them. It's fascinating, we mentioned this last week, but when you begin to compare Daniel's story to Esther and Mordecai, Daniel was taken captive just like Mordecai was in the Babylonian Empire right before this. And when you study Daniel's life, you'll see this just brazen bravery, this boldness in his life from a very young age at 14, 15 years old. That sure, he went along with culture within as being in exile, but at moments when it pushed against his faith, he did not budge. And then you compare that to Esther and Mordecai who assimilate in a culture we would look at at first glance through chapter 1 and 2 and you feel like there's not much bravery there at all but yet in chapter 3 and 4 begin to see this growing bravery. And if I'm just honest with you, with myself, I'm a whole lot more like Esther and Mordecai than I am like Daniel. Now for some of you, you are bold. And you know what the world needs? More Daniels who are bold and brazen with their faith. But you know what the world needs also? is people who are like Esther and people who are like Mordecai. The gospel story needs both. It needs people how you're wired to grow in your bravery. And for some of you, that's very bold and very evident. For others of you, it's growing. And maybe that's the question is, how have you seen God grow your bravery for him or for faith in the last few years? Are you more outspoken and more readily available to talk about your faith today than you were two years ago? And when conversations came up at the office or in the workplace or in the neighborhoods, were you, were you in your mind you wanted to talk about it, but you were like, oh, religion and politics, don't talk about those, right? And so maybe sheepishly you just kind of kept quiet. I'm not saying you have to go to the office tomorrow and start talking politics and religion. I'm not saying that. But have you seen God growing your bravery? And, and maybe, here's the question, how do you think God wants to keep growing your bravery? How does he want to grow this godly bravery within your own heart? How might he want to do that more and more? See, as a follower of Christ, we have to learn to live in this tension, this third way of not conforming, but not isolating. And how we live this out means at moments we're called to have courage and to have God grow this bravery within us. And what you're going to see in this story is two expressions of power. One is the ultimate grasp, the climbing of power, to say, I have power and therefore I will dominate over people and I will hold it over them. And yet you're going to see an expression of vulnerability that has godly power behind it. 
to, to be an advocate for others and not just thinking about yourself. That Mordecai and Esther highlight the difference that vulnerability can play within your life. That Mordecai passed for a Persian. He looked and acted like a Persian. He had nothing to gain with revealing his Jewishness and refusing to bow. He only had something to lose. But in this moment, for the sake of his soul, for the sake of God's people, for the sake of the good for the city, he chose not to bow. And it cost him. In fact, it, it puts this really in his world. And this invitation to a world gone mad will challenge us at times that rather continue the race to the bottom of victimhood or to climb to the tops and seize and hold on to power. We're to look at our world of how does faithfulness as being a, a follower of God, what does it look like to look into our culture and say, how can I make a difference even if it costs me? How can I be an advocate for the people around me and not just make it about me that's the challenge and invitation. At times, that will look like Mordecai's resistance. When we refuse to participate in something broadly accepted in our culture, and in doing so, we'll invite unrest and even anger from those around us, but vulnerability calls us to do it anyway. At other times, it may be that you're called to take action, to start a business, or to start a charity, or to get involved and look for the needs of your city, your school, your neighborhood, and to say, what can I contribute to make a difference here, even if it costs me, because vulnerability calls us to do it. That's where godly power is found. That it's times like those where it's called to action. Andy Crouch wrote a book, he talked about it like this, that as he talked about seeking the blessing of your city, remember we looked at Jeremiah 29 11 last week and before that, uh, God said to the people who were dispersed into the Persian Empire, into the Babylonian Empire, hey, build houses, settle down, pray for the city, the blessing of it, remember this is what he says, the vulnerability that leads to flourishing requires risk, the possibility of loss, the chance that when we act, we could lose something we value. But vulnerability calls us to be the best, and at its best, it means putting ourselves in harm's way for the sake of others, to advocate for them. And that's a challenge. When you're conforming, you don't have to face that challenge. When you're isolating, you don't have to face that challenge. But when you're trying to live a Jesus way, it means you're pushing back against the idol of power where you dominate over someone and you have control and you're living from a godly sense of power through vulnerability and humility, seeking the people's best around. So here's Esther's story begins to pick up steam here toward the end of chapter 3 and into chapter 4. Here's what it says. End of chapter 3, verse 8 through 11, it says this. Haman said to King Xerxes, so Haman gets an audience with the king. He's the chief advisor. All the other advisors have kind of gone away. He's the chief one there, and Haman hatches this plan. There's a certain people, he says, dispersed among the peoples of all the provinces of your kingdom who keep themselves separate. Their customs are different than those of all other people and they do not obey the king's laws. It is not in the king's best interest to tolerate them. So if it pleases the king, let a decree be issued to destroy them and I will give 10,000 talents of silver into the king's administrators for the royal treasury. So the king took off his signet ring from his finger and gave it to Haman, boo, the enemy of the Jews, keep the money, the king said to Haman, and do with the people as you please. Wow. What this sets in motion, if you look at it from a historical point of view, <clears throat> this is near the beginning of a year, the 12th year of King Xerxes' reign. The elimination of the Jews 
as he talks about here, would happen months later so that all the provinces could prepare for this day. And we looked at this reality that when the king makes a decree, it's irrevocable. He can't even change it. And so this decree goes out, and Mordecai is ignited into this moment to say, God, we got to do something. And he is no longer silent. In fact, he goes into sackcloth and ashes and tears his clothes and goes into deep mourning. And he's besieging God to intervene and to help. This is a moment where evil raises its ugly head. It begins to put emotion in plan of the genocide of the Jewish people, a pre-Holocaust Holocaust. When I was in Israel a few years ago, um, I got to go to the Holocaust Museum. You don't talk a lot in the Holocaust Museum. There's not chatter. There's not a lot of commotion. It's haunting. You cry a lot. I couldn't even find words to describe it. As you're reading the stories and seeing how history played out, and you're going, surely this should not happen. Like, how in the world? January 20th, 1942, a number of German officials gathered in what would be called the Wannsee Conference. They gathered, gathered in a dignified suburb of Berlin and sat in a room full of plush chairs and fine wooden furniture and agreed upon the final solution to the Jewish question, the mass extermination of Jews in Europe. It was said that the meeting was shorter than the cocktail hour that followed. And what you see in Esther is eerily similar. There was something so cold about this conversation. There were no arguments, there were no pauses, no moments of reflection or rebuttal. There was no consideration to another option, no counterpoints, no decision. Uh, this decision didn't even involve like blood sacrifice or incantation to evil spirits. There was no one pounding at the gates of the palace saying, we've got to do something about these evil Jews. There was none of that. It was very silent, conversational, bureaucratic even. An exchange of money, here's what we'll do, and things are decreed and, and passed out through the whole empire. Timetables established. Evil has many faces. It may be a reddened face in an angry mob. It may be a sadistic face of a killer or an abuser. But in Wanzi and here in this Persian throne room, evil wore the mask of political pragmatism. It pretended dignity, but in both rooms were intoxicated with evil fantasy. And this story, you see the difference between Haman's plan and how evil worked in his life and the indifference of King Xerxes and how evil played out in his life. To not push back, to not say anything. Here you go, do whatever you want. And to not say anything. The common thread here between Haman and Hitler is the way fantasies capture the imagination and give license to all kinds of evil. This thread stretches clear back to the Garden of Eden when man and woman said, wait, we can be like God? We'll make our own plan, and we'll do our own thing. God, we're not going to listen to you. See, once captivated by the lie, the sins necessary to pursue an evil dream just get justified. And things play out. I think that's why the teachings of Jesus are so vital and key to our life. 
the teachings of Jesus that hold us back to say, this is how you dream within the parameters God, God says, within the passions that he's put within you. Even the prayer, the Lord's prayer that he taught his disciples in Matthew 6, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. See, most evil plans are hallowed be my name. God, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. May the way things operate in heaven operate that way here more and more. That's the teachings of Jesus. That the way things operate in heaven, the way God dreamed it up originally and he wants it to be, may that take root more and more here. That's why it's vital for you not to conform and not to isolate. Why? You've got to live the third way, this Jesus way, that the ways of heaven would begin to take shape more and more through your influence and your participation. Jesus is teaching, he's encouraging them to dream. You are a human, you were built to dream. But we must dream within the godly parameters and passions so that our dreams promote the things of God and his good in this world and avoid the twistings of evil and the sadistic hatred that Satan longs to propagate. We know his plan. Jesus said it. The thief has come to steal, kill, and destroy, period. That's what he's about. But Jesus said, I've come to bring life. And what? Life to the full. We know the plan of the enemy. Selfish fantasy promotes unhealthy dreams, dreams really meant to push others down and promote our prideful desires. But godly dreams are about expanding the hope and reach of God and his good in this world and bring about blessings for others and ourselves. That we need godly dreamers in this world. If you fancy yourself a dreamer, good. Dream more. But dream within godly parameters within godly passions. Don't let the enemy take your dreams and go sideways and make it selfish because it can twist into something really, really bad. Not only bad for you, but a ripple effect of bad to other people and affects them. But if you're a dreamer, then dream within God's dreams. Mordecai can no longer be silent, and so he begins to mourn greatly. In fact, his, uh, his, his mourning captures the attention of Esther, and Esther sends a servant to find out what's going on with Mordecai. And, and here's their exchange at the beginning of chapter 4. Mordecai told him, the, the, the attendant that came from Esther's um, house, and said, is explaining everything to him, verse 7, everything that had happened to him, including the exact amount of money that Haman had promised to pay the royal treasury for the destruction of the Jews. He gave a copy of the text of the edict for their annihilation, which had been published to Susa, to show Esther and explain to her, and to tell her to instruct her to go to the king's presence, to plead and beg for mercy, and to plead for her people. Hathak went back and reported to Esther what Mordecai had said, verse 10. Then she instructed him to say to Mordecai, All the king's officials and the people of the royal provinces know that for any man or woman, who approaches the king in the inner court without being summoned, the king has but one law, that they would be put to death unless the king raises his scepter and spares their life. But it's been 30 days since I've been before the king. And then Mordecai has this exchange, probably the exchange that you know the story of Esther by. It's probably the most quoted verse in here, verse 14. When Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, he sent back this answer. 
do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of the Jews will escape. Okay, you haven't told anyone you're Jewish, but they're going to find out, is what he's saying. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will come. God will fulfill his promise. He will save us. But you and your father's family will perish. And who knows but that you have come to this royal position for such a time as this. Have you ever heard that phrase, such a time as this? That comes from Esther. It's this idea of divine timing. That perhaps you've been placed, positioned, put in a way that for such a time as this, that the leverage of your life could be used for God's good in this world. Now, you can read into that a lot, but I'm a big believer that the reason you're here is God has some passions and some missions for you to be about for such a time as this. I believe in the providence and the sovereignty of God, the assignment of God for each and every one of you. That no title makes anyone better than someone else. That each one of us have a contribution as a follower of Christ to give into this world. Then Esther sent this reply to Mordecai. Go gather together all the Jews who are with you in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. My, me and my attendants will fast as well. And when this is done, I will go to the king, even though it's against the law. And if I perish, I perish. That's bold. Don't you think? That's not the Esther of chapter 1 and 2. But that's the Esther of chapter 4 where God has been building this bravery within her, building it within Mordecai to take a stand, to say, hey, here's my line, and I'm, I'm just not going to go along with the crowd. I've got to resist a little bit. I'm not going to conform. I'm not going to isolate. I'm going to figure out this third way of living. And this is Esther's moment. We're going to pick up in this story next week, but just a couple of thoughts. And this building bravery, I think God really longs to build that within each one of us. I think we're a lot more like Esther and Mordecai than we are Daniel. But that doesn't give us an escape or an out. That doesn't call us to be timid. We're called not to be timid, to not live with fear, but to be bold with God. And that may look different for you than the person next to you or the person behind you. But what is it for you? How does God want to grow your bravery? This idea of fasting, it doesn't mean drive fast. A lot of you do that. Uh, fasting is this idea of giving up something, giving up food. If a way, giving it often it's food in order to seek God's will and activity for someone or yourself. It's saying I'm going to set aside something that's ordinary to live in an extraordinary way to focus in on God for a few minutes, days, whatever that may be. Or for this whole concept of fasting throughout the Bible, just a quick note on it, I think there's times for that. I don't know if you've ever fasted before. Um, <clears throat> for some of you, dietary reasons or diabetes, all that kind of stuff, it, it may be different than food. F fast from something else, social media, fast from you know, TV, whatever that may be. But there may come moments for you where you want to say, God, I, I do want to figure this fast thing out. I need wisdom from you. 
or I want to besiege you on behalf of someone else. I want to stand in the gap for them, and so I'm going to do this. This isn't what happened in the New Testament as religious leaders of the day. They made fasting kind of the sport. And in a way, they, they did it, and it was all about getting approval from other people. Look how much I fast. I'm way better than you, obviously. It's, fasting's not about becoming spiritually pious. So we don't make and draw attention to it. We do it, and in that moment of giving up something, we're trying to lean into God more on behalf of someone else or behalf of yourself. I've done this from times, and it's been really helpful. It's not a magic wand. It doesn't mean that you fast and all of a sudden God's going to answer every single prayer and everything's going to be, no, no. This is about paying attention to God more than your problems. And so when you're struggling, it may be a challenge for you to do it, but think about it. It may be an opportunity for you to grow in that. For such a time as this, Esther's put in this place to seek God's activity. Now, <clears throat> what drew King Xerxes to Esther? She was hot. Okay? That's all that King Xerxes thinks about, right? Remember, he had a harem of a thousand. So, like, it's kind of on his mind. Okay? <clears throat> After fasting for three days and not drinking water or eating... <laughs> Do you think she's awesomely beautiful? Probably still pretty beautiful, but have you ever given up food and water for three days? Do you feel awesome after that? No. My hunch is you don't feel awesome. And in those moments, in that vulnerability, she's going to go before the king. And if I perish, I perish. See, power in our cultural context there are a lot of people who clamor to climb up the ladder for power and to hold on to it, and the power they seek is to dominate over someone else. That's Haman. I'm going to dominate over the Jews. I'm going to wipe them out. I'm angry. So I will have control. But godly power is lived out of humility and vulnerability when you advocate for someone more than yourself. Friends, I wonder, if the church's moment in history, our history, our moment, needs to be found more, seeking the power of vulnerability and a godly-based power, than trying to clamor and hold on to some kind of control over people. I wonder if God is waiting for his church, for you and for me, because we're the church, if he's waiting for his people to say, Will you be vulnerable? Will you live a different way? Not seek to gain control. I've got control. I don't need you looking for it. But I need you to be vulnerable. And I need you to be humble. It reminds me of a teaching of Jesus. Matthew chapter 10, I'll close with this. James and John, their mom comes to Jesus and says, hey, uh, would you let permission for James and John to sit on your left and on your right when you come into your kingdom? <clears throat> Meaning, will you let them be the top two? The other ten disciples hear about that. How do you think that went? No bueno, okay? The other ten are ticked. Wait, 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 you want to have more power than me? What? <clears throat> Anyone ever had these emotions in your own life? Jesus calls his disciples together and says this. Jesus called them together, verse 42 of chapter 10. 
you know that those who regard as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. Their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. Whoever wants to be first must be a slave to all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus models godly power, which comes in vulnerability. To to seek the best for others, even at the cost to yourself. I wonder if the church would have more influence if we began to view it that way instead of clamoring for power and control. And we just said, you know what? We're not going to conform. We're not going to isolate. We just want to live more like Jesus. So, Father, that's what I pray for us as a church, each of us individually, that, God, we would come to, to a place of wrestling in the tension of figuring out and navigating, not to conform, not to isolate, but to live the way of Jesus. God, as we see you growing this bravery within Mordecai and Esther, I pray for each one here. God, would you grow godly bravery within them, within us. And this bravery and godly power would not be found in trying to clutch to hold on to things or to to be over somebody, but it would come by serving. It would come through vulnerability. It would come through humility as we seek to serve. Because you didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give your life as a ransom for many. That's why we celebrate communion. That you gave up your life so that I would have better life. So that we would have a better life through faith in you. So as we take communion here in a moment, as we celebrate in song, Would you speak into our life of how you want to grow our bravery? How you positioned us in our season, in our section of life, in our moment of history. And may we be your church, Jesus, that lives like you did. Humble, vulnerable. And God, let your power work all the ways that you want to work in and through that. We pray that in Jesus' name.